God, thanks for your word. We thank you for the rain outside, Lord, how much is needed for the crops, for the farmers, God, for our daily sustenance. We thank you, Lord, that you rain down your mercy upon us. You rain down your spirit upon us, God. And um, just as the ground is soaked, God, that's how we want to be um, with your love and mercy. And we just want to be covered with it, Lord. We want to be consumed by it. So we ask that you would do that, that you would do that today, God. Help us to um, have ears to hear whatever you have to say to us today, God. Uh, let us hear it. Let us respond in faith. And let us act it out, God. Uh, we thank you, God, that um, you've blessed us with um, children. And God, um, even at an early age, Lord, they can respond in faith to you. So um, us parents now, we intercede for our kids and ask that you would give each one of them saving faith, that they would receive the word today, God, in the service, and it would be planted deep in their soul. And we pray, God, for the older children, um, that you would continue to grow them, you would continue to woo them, you would continue to call them, Lord, um, to know you, to seek you, God, to serve you, Lord. And um, God, let us, uh, as men and women here, as parents, as grandparents, let us be good examples, God, um, to those around us who are younger. Lord, let us be able to say, as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Let us be able to say that, God, and let them desire to do that, God. We do ask you to forgive us our sins, God, um, in many areas we've fallen short just in even the past few days, God. Um, forgive us, Lord. We thank you that your mercies are new every day, that um, your face shines upon us, God, even when we turn away, even when we run away. You are ever present with us. You are ever drawing us, God. So let us return um, and seek you, God. And I pray for those that have burdens, whatever they might be, um, to cast them upon you. Because you say you'll take care of them, God. And I pray that um, us brothers and sisters in Christ would do what the scriptures say and would bear one another's burdens, God. So the burdens that we know about, that we would be faithful brothers and sisters to, um, to, to share the load, so to speak, and to walk with others, God. Um, as they hurt as they're suffering, God, um, as they're struggling. Lord, we want to see you high and lifted up. And we do thank you, God, that you have the victory, um, that you are the King of kings, that you are the Lord of lords, that you reign on high. Um, the, the time uh, is drawing near to the end, God, so let us be faithful to the end. Um, however many our days are, God, you have them numbered, and you know each one, Lord. So let us be faithful to the end, God, and uh, we pray that you would bless uh, the preaching of your word, that your spirit, uh, he would go forth and minister to each one of us, Lord. We pray this in your son's name and with his authority. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 6. We've been working through... Um, We've been getting to the point of working through, I should say, these verses, but 
there's kind of a long introduction that I've been doing. And uh, I'm just going to read the first two verses because that's as far as we're going to get at the most today. So Ephesians 6, verse 10, says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Hey, we're going to do two things today. One, we're going to look at the attack of the enemy, and then we're going to look at the first step we need to take in preparing for his attacks. Because here's the thing. Look, Satan knows how to attack us. He knows where to attack us. He knows how to attack us. He's, he's a sharp guy. And the names and titles that he has given in Scripture, they reveal something to us about him. Uh, scripture shows us who and what he is in the way it describes him. So we're going to look at a few of those names and titles. The two main ones that he has given in the scriptures are Satan and the devil. Satan can actually be a title. It can actually also be a name. Um, And scripture uses it uh, both ways. But really, it's just a Hebrew word. Um, And if you pronounced it in the Hebrew, it would just be uh, Satan. It means accuser, adversary, one who resists. And when the New Testament writers were writing, um, they just took that Hebrew word and transliterated it right into the Greek. So the Greek word is Satan as well. And what did the English writers do a couple thousand years later? We just took that Greek word and the Hebrew word and brought that right into the English. And we pronounce it Satan. Um, So Satan is the one that occurs uh, most of the time um, throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Job. The devil is the other title, and that is most frequently used by the New Testament writers. It occurs about 55 to 60 times, um, 35 to 40 times alone in just the Gospels. It means accuser or slanderer. Accuser or slanderer. And we're going to see in just a second that Satan slanders God to man, but he also slanders man uh, to God. He has other titles that you're probably familiar with. The serpent, the great dragon, a roaring lion, a thief, Beelzebul, the wicked one, the ruler of this world, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. That's just to name a few. But there's three other titles that reveal specifically how he works. So how does he work? Three ways. The first one is this, accusation. Accusation. If you look at Revelation chapter 12, we see this. In verse 10, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. He is the accuser of the brethren. And this is going on right now. He is accusing you. Guilty, guilty, guilty. He wants to be the judge, the jury, the executioner. He hates you. Satan hates you. And he accuses you to the Father. We see this in the book of Job. Turn to Job. So in Job chapter 1, he says this in verse 9. 
Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. What is Satan doing there? He's saying, look, if Job encounters just the right circumstance, he'll fall. He's not faithful to you, God. He's not following after you. He's only doing that because you've blessed him. But if just a little adversity comes, he's not going to be faithful. He's no good. He's going to fall away. He's accusing Job to God. That's what he's doing, accusing. And that's what he does with each one of us. He's accusing each one of us to God. And he's trying to remind the Father of our sin and how we've fallen. Even just yesterday, shoot, even just today, of what we have done. And he wants God, the judge of all the earth, to declare a guilty verdict. That's what he wants. Okay? Guilty. That's what he's looking for. We see this same thing in the book of Zechariah. I bet some of you guys have missed this before if you turn to Zechariah. So Zechariah has this vision in chapter 3. He says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is, this, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Okay, That's, It's a vision that Zechariah has, right? What do the filthy garments represent? Joshua's sin. And that's what uh, Satan is pointing out. He, he's guilty, Lord. The high priest, the one who's supposed to oversee the spiritual nation of Israel... He's guilty. Judge him. Judge him. So he's accusing him. But it goes on. Look. Verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, and check this out, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And that is what God does with us. Do we have the filthy garments? Yes. Yes. All right? I got a wardrobe full of them. All right? But what does Christ do? He removes the iniquity. And he clothes us with righteousness. Okay? So, Satan is accusing, but Christ is interceding. Look, when Christ said, it is finished... That's what he meant. It is finished. There's no going back. Christ took care of it. Romans 8 reminds us, it says, Christ, who indeed is interceding for us? He is interceding for us. The present tense, it's an ongoing act of Christ. We think of Christ doing many, many, many things. We don't always think of him interceding for us. But he's interceding for us. What what do we need intercession for? Because there's an accuser. We have someone who is accusing us. 
So he's interceding on our behalf. When you pray for someone, what are you doing? You're stepping in on someone else's behalf. You're interceding for your friends or your family. Romans 8 goes on and says, nothing can separate us. Look there, actually. Romans 8. Look at this in verse 34. Oh, we've got to go back to 31. Sorry. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then look at this in verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Okay? So that, that word rulers and that word powers, we've already seen this in Ephesians 6, we've seen it in Colossians chapter 2. That's not talking about earthly, it's talking about heavenly. Okay? These heavenly demonic rulers, these heavenly demonic powers. Okay? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? Physical things and spiritual things, nothing can separate us. Not one thing. So, that voice of condemnation, that's not the voice of God that you hear. If you are feeling condemned, that is not God. That is the voice of the devil himself. Listen, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 reminds us, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Look, if Christ bought you, if you're one of his, if his blood covers you, then he owns you. Okay? And Christ doesn't go back to the store and return what he bought. He just doesn't. So if you've been bought, he owns you, and he's not giving you up. So you need to remind yourself, I was bought. I was bought. Christ owns me. He owns me. Listen to this. Satan also accuses God to man. All right? First one was he accuses man. He takes us and goes before the Father and is like guilty. But then, what does Satan do? He actually comes to us and accuses God to us. What do I mean? Well, something happens in your life and, and Satan comes to you and he, and he points a finger at God and says, see, if, if God really loved you, that wouldn't happen to you. If God really cared about you, would he really let you be going through this? If God really loved you, would he really let you be suffering in the way that you are? Would he? He accuses God to you. And so, he comes to you and, and says, wow, you're 
25 years old? And you're not married? And there's people that are younger than you who are married. Does God really love you? Does he care about you? Why is he providing for those people and not for you? He's not a good God. Or he comes to you and, you say, and he says, <clears throat> that, that marriage over there, they, they have a strong marriage. And, and, and you have a bad marriage. And, and if God really loved you, he would have given you a godly spouse. Of course, it's not your fault, right? <laughs> that you have a bad marriage. He would have given you a godly spouse. If he really loved you, if he really cared about you, if he really had your best interest at heart, if you're really one of his children, or he comes to you and says, you know, those people have some amazing, awesome children over there. What about your children? They're not so great. And if God really was concerned about you, if he really cared about you, he wouldn't have done that. So he starts using other people. And then what happens? Well, you get mad at God, and you actually end up getting embittered toward those people at the same time. He's pretty smart. Two birds, one stone. Those are lies from the enemy. Lies from the enemy. You have to stop and believe in the lies. Satan always wants you to doubt God's goodness and love. All the time, that's what he wants you to do. Look at Job. Right? Everything's taken away from him. And what, if it, what does his wife say? Curse God and die. Right? Curse God and die. And that's really what Satan was wanting, right? Curse God and die. Come on, you know, Satan's just there, and he's got, he's just, the, the, the boils are just oozing with that clear goo stuff and, and pus, right? And, and Satan is there, and he's like, I've got this. I've got this. He is gonna, he's going to do it. He is going to curse God. He's going to curse God. And then he's going to give up. He's going to do it, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. I mean, Job is brought to, like, the precipice, right? I mean, worst of worst of worst circumstances, and he resists. He doesn't do it. He does not curse God. So, he accuses. That's his first tactic. Second, deception. He's a deceiver. Look back in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, we looked at this last week. It says in verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. He's a deceiver. He is a deceiver from the beginning. And he, 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 he tries to make things seem innocent, makes things seem sweet. He makes us see things in ways that are not true. That would be deception. Okay? And what does 2 Corinthians 11 tells us? He transforms himself into what? An angel of light. Now think about that. You know, an angel appears to you, you'd probably think, right? There'd be some light there. Angel of light is how he transforms himself. And why does he do it? So as 
to deceive, it says. So as to deceive. And Satan's going to use different situations to deceive us so that we choose the bad and not the good. It will never be obvious. It will never be obvious. He's a deceiver. He is wise. He is cunning. You will not see it coming. That's what makes it so deceitful. But look at 2 Corinthians 2. Paul tells us it's possible to not be taken in by Satan when he tries to deceive us. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. All right? We are not outwitted. Look, the Corinthian church had many challenges. And as they were working through them and being sanctified, they are warned to not be duped. And you know what? If you read First and Second Corinthians, and I know you guys have, but when you read it, they were being duped. And they're being duped so badly, they're like doubting whether Paul is even like a real apostle. Think about it. All right? It's very clear to us, 2,000 years later, but this church, caught up in all sorts of immorality, couldn't even figure out and see so clearly that the apostle Paul was an apostle. They were duped. They were being deceived. He has to defend his apostleship, apostleship to them. Second uh, Corinthians ten, he, he he notes his letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. I mean, they're insulting him. That's what the chatter and the gossip was going on in the church in Corinth, and so he has to address that. If if the New Testament church can be deceived. And many letters attest that the different churches were. Can't we be deceived today? Right? Can't we be deceived? Yes, we can. Listen, I have seen people ascribe to the Lord what was really from Satan. And it's sad. And I've had people tell me that the Lord was leading them to do something when clearly the Lord was not in it. But they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. They were being deceived. Think of Ananias in, in Acts chapter 5. What does Peter say? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? So he's filling it. He's filling it, right? Ananias had to make a decision. And actually, the initial decision was actually a good decision, right? Sell the piece of land. Give the money. But something or someone whispered something to Ananias along the way that made him want to hold back. He held a portion back. Maybe Satan whispered, keep a little back. You never know when you might need it. So he lied and it was instigated by Satan. Satan filled his heart. What about David? Look in 1 Chronicles 21. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David 
to number Israel. So David said to Joab, the commander of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. I mean, I can see David thinking to himself, Hey, I need to make sure that the kingdom's going well, and I mean, I'm the king, and this is my job. Uh, I, I need to make sure there's plenty of provision for the troops, so let's get a good count here. And we, we have been under attack quite a bit, so I want to make sure that I know how many troops I got and how many I can put over here and how many I can put over here. Even with <clears throat> the people themselves, is there plenty of food for the kingdom? Do we have enough ability to make sacrifices for the people? And what about those Levites? We need to get a good count on those Levites because we want to make sure the worship's going well, right? I mean, I can just see him thinking through some of those things, justifying what was sin. He was deceived. He was deceived. And we, too, often justify our sin. That is deception. We are walking in deception when we do that, when we justify our sin. And and most of the time, we don't even know it. We don't even realize it. Satan has us duped. The third area is temptation. I think this is the main one we think about when we think about the ways that Satan attacks us, but the first two are very key. The third one is temptation. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 3, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer... We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker, and the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So he's the tempter. Listen, Satan exploits the God-given desires of humans and he entices them to find fulfillment in ungodly, artificial, and selfish ways. Did you hear me? Okay. That's what he does. He exploits God-given desires. And and we twist them, and he entices us to find the fulfillment in ungodly, artificial, and selfish ways. And usually what happens regarding temptation is is usually there's some type of deception involved in it. Okay, So you're being tempted to look at pornography. Usually there's a deception that's tied to that temptation. I mean, you wouldn't look at it unless you believed it'd satisfy you in some way. Right? That whatever you're missing, intimacy, love, pleasure, that, 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 that the porn can provide it. And, and so you, you walk down that road because you believe the lie. You're being deceived. Yes. So you believe it. And you walk down that road. And you're, you open yourself to that temptation. And so, boom, you go that way. Uh, what about the idol of money? You know, if I just have that car or that iPhone or that set of clothes, I'll be happy, I'll be content, I'll be satisfied, I'll be filled with pleasure. Well, I mean, do you end up being happy or content or satisfied or filled with pleasure? I mean, not long term. I mean, think about the last car you bought. 
Okay? Especially if you bought a nice one. Usually for like, well, I don't know, it's like the first couple weeks or a couple months, you're like, I got a new car. I got a new car, right? You're all like jazzed up and everything. And then like, I just, it's happened to me every time I bought a new car. Like a couple months down the road, I'm just like, that new car I used to be excited about, I just get into it every day now. And I'm not jazzed up about it. Because I'm just driving to work and driving home. Right? I mean, it, the, the new becomes old. And then it's not special anymore. That's what happens. So our idols will disappoint us. The idol of food, right? It comforts me. It doesn't disappoint me. It doesn't let me down. It brings me pleasure. Well, does it? I mean, does it really? Maybe short term, but not really. Your idols will disappoint. Look, idols seek to give you that which only God himself can give. And and the reason you're disappointed in your idol is because it can't truly satisfy you. The reason you're, you're you're, you're, you're continuing in your sin is you're seeking a fulfillment that you can't attain through it. A hundred times, out of a hundred times, your idol will let you down. Every single time. It will take from you the very thing you're seeking. All right? You feel all great and, and awesome and powerful after looking at pornography? No. After gouging yourself on food? No. After you're wasting your money on something frivolous? No. The very thing you're seeking, you actually end up not getting it all, really. You end up empty. So here's the thing. This is what Satan's been doing from the beginning. From our very first parents, Adam and Eve. Satan's been doing this. And oftentimes when he attacks us, he will use a combination of those three things to get us. Let's look at Genesis and we'll walk through it briefly so you can see it enacted with Adam and Eve. Genesis 3. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. Here we see each of the things. Accusation, deception, and temptation. Uh, What's the accusation? God is holding out on you. He's holding out on you. That tree that he said not to eat? Well, he doesn't want you to do it. Because he's holding out on you. He doesn't want the best for you. Because if he wanted the best for you... He'd let you eat that fruit. He'd let you do it. So you're missing out. And you can have it. And you should have it. It's not very fair for God to tell you no. What's the deception? 
couple. Did God really say? Right? Wants to create some doubt. And did God really say not to do that? Did he really? Are you sure? Right? The deception starts. And it's coupled with a lie. You shall not die. Come on, seriously, you're going to eat that fruit and you're going to die? Come on, are you stupid? You're not going to die? Deception. What's the temptation? Be like God. You will be like God. You can have what you really want. Eating the fruit will make your life so much better. So it's possible that when you are under attack, you are being attacked from all angles at once. He'll use any combination he can to make you fall. He is wise, he is crafty, and he will do whatever it takes to bring about your sin. Here's the thing. You have help. You have help. And it's in Jesus. Look at Hebrews. I read this thing earlier this week. I thought it was good. It said, all the other religious leaders besides Jesus came to the earth and said, do. Jesus came to the earth and said, done. Isn't that good? Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When Satan comes, you have a brother, a faithful high priest, the Son of God himself, to stand with you and fight with you and walk with you through that temptation. It is the truth. Listen, I've said it before. I'm going to continue to say it. As I'm preaching in this series, Satan is limited in his power and authority. He is limited. He has as much access to you only as God allows. Only as God allows. No more. Remind yourself of that when you're under attack. It's not like God's like, oh my goodness, what is... Go- oh, Satan's at it again. How am I going to... Come on, seriously? God knows. He knows. He knew it. He foresaw it. So when you're under attack, God knows. That should actually be a comfort. He's allowing it. He would not put you in a situation that you could not withstand. Fact. He would not set you up to fail. He wouldn't do it. 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
He does not set you up to fail. Every single temptation you've ever faced in your entire life, you could have made it through if you were a believer. You could have. He doesn't put you in a situation. He doesn't let you be tempted beyond your ability. You could have withstood it. Your flesh, your will, whatever you want to call it, it gave in. Mine has too, many times. But you have Christ on your side, and you don't have to give in. You never have to give in. Ever, ever, ever. You don't have to give in. He is on your side. He has gone through it. C.S. Lewis, you have to read C.S. Lewis, because I'll just paraphrase, and it won't be a great paraphrase, but he, he talks about temptation and how Christ was tempted. And he said, the person who knows temptation the greatest is the one who has withstood the temptation and never gave, given into it. But you think about when you're tempted. Now, sometimes, if you think about the various struggles or, or sins you've had over the year, sometimes you're tempted just a little bit, and it's just like, man, you just dive into the pool, right? I mean, it didn't take much. Like, Satan just like, boop, and you're like, in the sin, right? But then there's other times where, I mean, you're like resisting, and you're resisting, and you're resisting, and then finally you give in. I mean, you fought, you fought, but whatever reason, you go that way. And Jesus, every single time, resisted all the way and through the temptation. Every single time. So who knows temptation the greatest? The one who is victorious every single time. He knows the intensity of temptation. He knows what it's like to be brought to the very edge of it and not give in to it in a way that we do not know. Because he never gave in. He was sinless. So when it says that he is able to help those who are being tempted because he was tempted we should take great comfort and solace in that. He was there. He walked on this earth. All right? He was a man just like you. Yes, the God-man, but he was a man just like you. And he had the same emotions and feelings and struggles that is common to man. He had to if he was man. And he made it. And he was victorious. And he walked obediently. And you, because of him, can do the same. You can do the same. You can say no to temptation every single time. Because of Christ. Because of what he has done. Uh, Hold on, maybe at the end, okay? So, how do we fight? It starts with the Lord. It starts with the Lord. We have to go to him. We have to go to him. The scriptures say, draw near to God. Draw near to God, and that's what we need to do. We will look at the specific ways of drawing near to him, of going to him. It's really simple, though. Just get on your knees. Get on your knees. Go to the Lord. He will hear you. He is not an angry father. He is not keeping his hand, keeping you away, hands distance. He wants you to come. He is wooing you. He wants you very close. He will stand with you. He will walk with you. Here's what one theologian said in reference to how Satan knows exactly how to attack us. He has an apple for Eve, a grape for Noah, a change of raiment for Gehazi, 
and a bag of silver for Judas. He knows, Satan knows what our weaknesses are. He knows what angle to take, and he will take it. And listen to me, folks. If I said, hey, there's a guy coming, and he wants to destroy you, and he wants to destroy your family, what would you do? You'd get ready, you'd prepare. You would prepare. So, prepare. You know the accusation is going to come. You know the deception is going to come. You know the temptation is going to come. Prepare. Prepare. And that's what Ephesians is talking about. Be strengthened is the first thing. Put on the armor is the second. Stand firm is the third. Prepare. That's the point. Prepare. And apart from Christ, you won't be prepared. If you're not standing with him, remember, you're on his team. You're on his side. If you're not in Christ, you'll fail every time. If you're not abiding in the vine, it's not going to go well. You must abide. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Look, any temptation you face, any accusation you receive, any deception occurring, it can be battled, it can be fought, it can be defeated in Christ. God always gives a way out. That's why we need to be fast to the word to guard against deception. That's what Paul's laying out. That's what he's going to talk about, that sword of the Spirit. We'll get there and look at it. But we can do the battle. We can do it. We're told to do it. So let's prepare. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that um, you stand with us every single time. You're with us, God, even when we fall. And we thank you, Lord, that it says the righteous falls seven times, but he gets back up. And you're the one, God, that gets us back up. So we thank you for that, God. We thank you that you're merciful. We thank you, Jesus, that you went through temptation after temptation. Satan himself appeared to you and gave you the greatest temptation he could possibly throw at you. And you made it. You denied him. You glorified the Father. So be with us, God. Let us draw near to you. Let us prepare. God, make us ready for the day of battle is here. We are in it, God. Prepare our hearts. Prepare our minds, Lord. Be glorified in our midst. We love you. Amen.